Welcome back to Uncorked Monthly, everyone. This is Mark Powers, your Editor-in-Chief. From dirt to grape to barrel, and ultimately to glass, wine in the process of producing it are a beautiful intersection of science, the natural world, and human ability. Uncorked Monthly is honored to be able to get behind the why of what motivates Eric Flanagan as a husband, a father, and a vineyard owner. years since we did something with you it has yeah 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 i've noticed a lot's happened <laughs> so it's good riley's uh producing wine and all kinds of stuff's going on in the flanagan family yep riley started making her own wines in uh 2017 oh 17 okay yeah she her first vintage wine she ever made was actually made like four barrels of 15 chardonnay I guess that was in 2016. She was our our harvest, our summer and harvest intern in 2016. Nice. She started when she was 17 years old. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she she then she introduced um, some wines that have gone on to be really successful. For she did her first Sauvignon Blanc 17, and I was stoked about that because there was a couple of things that, that Riley and I talked about. I mean, the first thing is you know. She helped me plant the first grapevine when she was two. Yeah. And she just wanted to work in the wine business since then, right? Right. With me. Right. So, you know, we, we knew that. But she came to me when she was working for us when she was 17. Uh, when she worked for me for the summer, she's like, you know, Daddy, I always want to work with you. But, you know, like, no offense, but you're like a little bit old and extremely stubborn. So, like, <laughs> are you ever going to let me do anything or change anything? I said, you know. That's a that's a great question. She's like, so what's my job going to be, you know, if you're never going to change anything? I said, awesome question, right, right. What do you want your job to be? Right. She said, well, I want to make like my own wines that are like varietally correct wines that young people could afford to try. They're really well made. Beautiful. I was like, that that sounds like a freaking mission statement, right, right. I'm like, I yeah. think you should do that. So the first wine we ever made was an 04 cab that we made one barrel of and me and Riley and Philippe and uh, his wife, Cherie, and their daughter, Chloe, who's Riley's age, we hand bottled that in 2006, and it was super fun. And we, we called that Riley's Rose. And we, we you know, used a label that Riley drew when she was four after we picked the first grapes. You know? right. And so when she wanted to do her own label, we brought that, that Riley's Rose back. And... Um, and that's her, that's her brand, Riley's Rose. So oh, and she's doing it. she's doing almost as much wine as I am. So is she really? That's good. Mm -hmm. Following Daddy's footsteps, pretty. Uh, from what I've researched, that's uh, it's pretty exciting to kind of see you know see and just how the you know the passion for the process and the art of winemaking, right? Riley's the best. Yeah, and she went to Cal Poly. Uh, she didn't do a wine and vit major because it was business focused. And she's like, okay. Daddy, I've been learning a wine business from you my whole life. So I don't really want to sit there and have somebody else tell me about how to run a wine business. Yeah. But uh, she did chemistry because, you know, for winemakers, the thing that they find the hardest is the chemistry piece. And uh, Riley ended up teaching chemistry to the wine and vit majors. So, yeah. Uh, kind of you know no offense to them like laughing at them because they were all struggling so much with basic chemistry and she's like well, so, oh boy. so many people don't realize i mean 
you know, they, they you know, the people, I know what I've talked. So, <laughs> you know, as, as, as we, you know, we, we, we caught up here and I, and, and you, we started off with Riley, some stuff about her and her brands and how you guys are working together. I, I want to circle back to her. Um, I want, I want everyone that hasn't, you know, perhaps read or heard about Flanagan wines, you know, in, in Uncorked Monthly or just hasn't, you know, they haven't really heard about you. Um, I know all about you, believe it or not. I've done a ton of background. Plus, we interviewed you in 2015 for Uncorked Monthly and have a nice, yeah. your, your, your article that we wrote back then is still, you know, getting a lot of traffic. And t- tell our audience, for those that don't know you, your background and, and what led you to purchasing your first vineyard and becoming a winemaker. What was that passion? Because I know, you know, we can go out there and pull up Eric Flanagan and there's so many stories about you out there, but I like people hearing it from the winemaker and vineyard owners themselves. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, really it started Mark with, with drinking and uh, traveling <laughs> and I think people that may laugh, but it's true. You know, I, I got into wine in my sort of late twenties I guess I was uh, working in New York and uh, getting out to dinner a lot. And, you know, people exposed me to, to really great wines from around the world and would invite me out to some really amazing wine events. And, and I also traveled a lot. So I, I visited wineries in Australia and New Zealand, and Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, France, e- everywhere, really. Uh, well, that's an overstatement because grapes are now grown, I think, in every country in the world. Uh, certainly in every state in the United States, which was not true 30 years ago, right? So, mm-hmm. true. Uh, you know, when I started, if you were going to go wine tasting in the United States, you're going to Napa or possibly Sonoma. But there was, you know, there might have been like two wineries in Virginia and two in Long Island, but they were terrible, you know. And so, you know, it, it really has, it is amazing how, how it's blown up. But, but anyway, that's what got me going. And, and I was fascinated about how, how the same grape variety grown in different soils or in a different climate, or even just in the hands of a different winemaker could, yes. could make such a different wine, you know? So really, really interesting to me. So, you know, that's what, what kicked it off. And, uh, yeah. And I, I kind mean, of that's, just that's, from that's there. In, in, in a sense, really how I started on Quark Monthly. I, I was traveling around Europe a lot at the time. Similar, I mean, somewhat similar back story, but I yeah. drank a lot of wine. I didn't know much about it. I figured the best way to learn about wine was to write about it and meet amazing winemakers and people, you know, people like you and learn about your passion of, of doing what you do. And that, I mean, essentially, that's how Uncorked Monthly started. It was some, a simple, just out of drinking, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, Same thing. So, yeah, I, you know, I love it. It, it's, it would be hard to get here if you didn't enjoy wine. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. this is weird to me. I see occasionally, you know, someone in the business who doesn't like wine. And I'm like, huh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that's the best starting point for the process here. But, uh, you know, it's I very, uh, right. Can you imagine trying to talk about your wines if you didn't drink them? What's the best you know, part I, about being a winemaker? What's the best part or that's the best part? No, what is the best part for you? Oh. I uh, mean, aside think, from, you know, being able to drink some amazing wines that you produce. Yeah, to me, the best part of the wine business, if you want to start with that, is the people that you meet. I mean, the wine business is not a financially fantastic business, 
You know, you right. can do okay with vineyards if you buy the right vineyard, you know how to manage it. You have relationships with good wineries who will buy your fruit at a fair price. You can actually make money owning vineyards, you know, and you have the, the operating income from the farming and then you have some appreciation in the asset and you can even, you know, improve the reputation of the vineyard and kind of create what we would call in the hedge fund business alpha. You know, you create uh, a value in, in what you're doing that's above and beyond any kind of just flat market increase in value you know right. so right. there's there's opportunity in vineyards to make money but building a wine brand is very challenging and and people really have no idea i mean you look at our path i bought the ground in 1999 right uh i planted the first grapes in 01 we got one barrel of wine in 04 you know and that one barrel of wine probably cost me a million dollars you know what i mean like no joke you know like, isn't that crazy to think about well, I mean, yeah, you have to, at this point, you know, you, you, you have, a, you paid to plant the vineyard, you paid to farm the vineyard for four years before you got the first fruit and you finally got a little fruit, then you pay for the barrels and, you know, and then you got to get the glass and the corks and the foils and the labels. And of course, printing labels when you're only doing, you know, 300 labels is retarded. I mean, you wind up with like, you know, $6 a label or something to print them because it's such a small run, you know, and it just goes on and on like that. And. And so you look at the next year, 2005, we made 150 cases. Well, if we sold every bottle at full retail, that was 150,000 in revenue. And the nut to run the winery that year, uh, and you know, you're in, by the way, 08 when you're selling it, right? Yeah. So 01, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, you're paying a farmer. And starting in 04, you're paying a winemaker, right? And then you yeah. need a guy to run the cellar because the consulting winemaker isn't there every day. So you need a guy on site. And so, you know, and then you need someone to like, once you have wine, you need someone to host people if they come visit you and take orders if people call up on the phone, you know, <laughs> yeah. you have to build a website, right? And all, of, and then you release the wine mm -hmm. in 08. So it's right. It started in 99. It's 08 before I sell the first wine. And the revenue from that, if I sold every bottle at full retail, which wasn't the case, it would have been 150,000 and the expenses were like 2 million. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so that's, that's going, the thing that people, people look into the industry with this romantic kind of lens yeah. that you're sitting around these gorgeous vineyards, which you do have because they see these pictures and beautiful yeah. wine glass shots and people smiling and, but what they don't realize is everything you just stated. It's a business. It's a farm. There's it's volatile to a lot of you know economy economic uh, situations. And you're right. And that bottle of wine, what goes into that bottle, nobody really understands the blood sweat. Yeah, they here. don't get it. And you know, I sold my original winery uh, when we bought our new place up in Hillsburg in 2016. And I promise you, you know, that the new owner, just like I, you know, just like me, 15 years earlier you know, had no idea, you know, you just don't. And, and the funny thing is, you know, I'm on the road about 180 days a year and I, I probably do a hundred to 120 wine events a year. And, um, I may be able to cut back on that a little bit now that Riley is out of college and she's on the road full time. Uh, you know, I'm hoping, you know, I, a few things. One is that some of the events I do with her, which is fun. Some of them she can do instead of me. And in the, in the other events, my wife's going to be able to come with me more because we, our youngest daughter just went to college. She's going to Wake Forest, Mark, where I went and graduated, as I like to say, in a whole nother century. 
But, okay. but that's it's all making my road life a little easier when my wife can come with me it doesn't feel like work then it feels more fun uh you know if i meet riley at an event it's a blast it's like being back in college because riley's 23 and, and you know and, you know she, she'll get me to rally for two days and pretend i'm 23 and then uh you know the the the, the rest of the time i'm on the road by myself it's not as bad because it's not so much you know so but anyway, people don't get it. Like if you're going to build a brand from scratch, it literally for me to bootstrap the thing and take it from losing almost 2 million a year in 2000 and, you know, literally six, seven, eight, no, no income, fully staffed, right? No income. And then what you realize is you're sitting there like the only way out of this hole right. is to pay it forward. You know, you got to get to 3,500 or 4,000 cases and have a pretty good price point. I mean, our average bottle of wine costs about 75 bucks. And I'm at this point, 80% direct to consumer. And we make a little money, you know, literally 20 years after we planted the first grapevines, you know, uh, it, it's that long a process. Uh, you know, yeah. look, lightning can strike, you know, look, if you're best friends with a really important wine critic, that would help, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I, I can only I, imagine, you know, from your from from Kit's perspective. I mean, being married to an entrepreneur for a lot of people is a difficult journey, right? But Mark, she seemed terrifying. to embrace it's terrifying. The yeah, it's terrifying. She seemed to embrace the vision of you wanting to become an entrepreneur and owning the, a, a vineyard, correct? Or what was that journey like for her? Yeah, better to come at that one with a question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say she's been incredibly supportive. She looked after three girls while I was on the road. I, 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 you know, I had a financial business, Mark, that I ran. And that yeah. really, the time for that came to a close right before we spoke last time. Uh, at the end of 2013, with the passage of Dodd-Frank, it mm -hmm. destroyed the leverage in the system and it eliminated the niche that I had profitably occupied for 29 years. So there went the revenue stream right so yeah now i have this winery hemorrhaging money and i have no income and you know we have some assets but not you know mass i mean all my money's tied up in my winery right like yeah. you know so uh and we have three kids in private school you can imagine living in california with three kids in private school oh, yeah. it's just the hemorrhaging cash right and Absolutely. so Basically, in 2013, I kind of looked at her and said, you know, like, there, there's two ways out. One is to fold the tent and admit defeat and, like, try to go get a job working for a bank or something. You know, not like a local commercial bank, but like an investment bank or a hedge fund somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, even though the strategy as a standalone strategy um, had disappeared with Dodd-Frank, I could have applied some of the skills that I had to a different segment of the market. I could have worked at a larger fund and helped them make certain kinds of trading decisions. But anyway, I don't want to get into that too much. But I right. said, you know, it's either that or I need to like, I need to like make this thing work. Like I just have to like sheer force of will and effort, you know, make it work. And she was supportive of it. And I, I really did at that point get on the road about 180 days a year. And I just did wine dinner after wine dinner after wine dinner at country clubs across the country. Uh, I would stay at friends' houses because it didn't cost anything. 
They would invite their friends over for a party on the night I didn't have a country club dinner and get their friends to all join my wine club. And that's how we grew the brand. I never made the brand about the winemaker. Uh, when I started, I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, the guy who helped me make our first barrel of wine was a pretty famous winemaker. And he's a great friend of mine. We still serve together and, and spend time together and work together. He bought fruit from me at a couple of the different vineyards that I own through the vineyard group. But um, I never made my brand about the winemaker. The brand is about our vision for the wine and about the vineyard sites we choose and about our integrity and our commitment to making amazing wines. We really yeah. do. Riley said it right. We want to make really well-made, variety correct wines, you know, and price them fairly. I price things fairly for what I would want to pay for them, you know. So right. and it's shocking to me when somebody launches a new winery and wants four or five or six hundred dollars a bottle for their wine. Like, why? Yeah. Why do I care? Why would I pay that? There's oceans of great wine for a hundred dollars a bottle. Why am exactly. I going to indulge your ego project at 600 a bottle? You know, just, and that, that was going to get back to one of the seminal challenges that's unique to the wine business, possibly only uh, competition for the wine business in this category is horse racing business. There's massive uh, egos here and massive capital. So we are competing in a normal business, right? You're competing with rational business people, right? If you owned a dry cleaning business, okay. Right. No one is in the dry cleaning business that's losing money. If you're losing money in your dry cleaning business, you close the dry cleaner, open a no, another low barrier to entry business like a nail salon, and you drive on, right? You don't right. keep running your dry cleaner at a loss because you love it. Nobody says, but wait, I have a passion for high heat, harsh chemicals and managing illegal immigrant labor. No one says that, right? So they stop. But in the wine business, people don't stop, right? You've got these billionaires that come up, right? Guys make a billion in tech or in whatever they do, you know, or a guy like Foley who made, you know, billions in a title company. And they come right. up here and they just buy stuff and they pay, you know, whatever they feel like paying. So let, let's say you were my winemaker, Mark, and you're working for me and I'm, I'm overpaying you at two fifty dollars a year. And, yeah. you know, you're acquiring some experience and building a little reputation and, you know, together we're making great wines. Some guy comes along and says, oh, hey, that Mark guy, I like those Flanagan wines. Who's the winemaker? Oh, yeah, Mark. Mark, yeah, he's great. Hey, you know, let's hire him. Oh, yeah, but he's not available. You know, yeah. what does he make? He's, he's making $250. Pay him $500. I don't care. Right? <laughs> Just pay him. I don't care. I'm worth a billion dollars. I don't care. Right. I want what I want. I want it when I want it. I want that Tokelon fruit. And I want the Terrence OT5 barrel. And I want a famous consulting winemaker, you know? And they just, they don't, so these guys write a check for three or $4 million a year to have their little winery, you know? So crazy. it's very, very hard to compete with extremely well-capitalized people who are not rational economic actors. Yeah. And I think that's, what's brilliant about your background where you get that stuff and you know how to run a profitable yet it's challenging to do so in today's economic conditions. And for stories that you just shared with, you know, I think people that just randomly throw dollars around. They don't care if they lose three or four million dollars. It's hard to compete with people who don't care if they lose money, you know, and who have yeah. lots of it. So I think, uh, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people about this. I had one buddy who said uh, he talked to one of the, the, the large banks that finances wineries. And uh, they said they had like 160 small winery clients and like seven of them were profitable. Wow. <laughs> so that is something. You know, 
for us to yeah, finally move into I can't profit, imagine we're running businesses like that. Yeah, and so when you talk about my wife being patient, I don't know if you use the word patient, uh, supportive. Supportive, uh, yeah. She was, but there were definitely moments like, you know, just to, you know, like, and people don't get that. People are always like, oh, you want a winery? You're like one of those rich guys. You're like, whatever. That You know, you have this great lifestyle. You sit around on your porch drinking wine all day and money just comes to you. You're like, well, no, when you visit my winery, you have the experience you think I'm having all the time. <laughs> you sit on my patio with a fantastic view across Dry Creek Valley, and you enjoy beautiful wines with fantastic service, and we have great staff there, and they're super knowledgeable and lovely, and people have the best visit ever when they come see us, and they're like, oh my God, this is what Eric does all day. I'm like, Eric never does this, you know? <laughs> I don't day drink, I have no time for that, you know? And so it's very funny. Everybody who visits has the experience they think I have, but but to, to, to put it on the map for like how real it gets, you know, in 2017, we were completely out of money. And I, I realized back in 2013, I really had to grow. We were doing about 1300 cases in 2013. And I realized I had to get to 4,000 cases at least to have a chance to make wine where if I sold 4,000 cases, mostly to direct to consumer, mm -hmm. then I would at least have a chance to break even or make a little money. If I was making less than 3,000 cases, I could never be profitable. Right. There's just no way. So now I've got to expand a lot. I've got to buy a lot more grapes, I've got to hire extra people. I need more glass, more corks, more foils, more labels, more cardboard boxes, more storage space at the warehouse. And I'm going to make all this wine and not see any revenue from it for years, right? Correct. If it's a Chardonnay, maybe 18 to 24 months. If it's a Cabernet, more like three to four years, right? I don't release it until three years after harvest. So I'm going to sell the average bottle of Cabernet probably four years after harvest. Yeah, and see, that's so, the thing that the wine consumers don't clearly understand. And I, and they, they go, well, I'm, I'm enjoying this varietal, this vintage, and it's it's ten years old, but they don't understand how long that actually takes to, you know, produce and age, and the money that you have to pay as a vineyard owner up front for that process. And it, you know, you, you and then it all you know, forward, right? Oh yeah, I mean, you're paying for future stuff, right? And so, what what are some of the fundamental char characteristics you think um, of Flanagan wines that people should know about? Well, I'll finish the last story real quick, and then I'll talk about that. But what I was getting at is, we're completely out of money in 2017, and we had to okay. sell our house to get the equity out of it, uh, and we moved into a rental. And like, this is a lot to oh. ask for your wife and children. We sh we had a really nice home it wasn't a large home or really fancy but it was you know it had a little pool there was a pond it was a couple acres of vineyard it was a 23 we have three big dogs it was a perfect spot for the dogs you know it was just my wife would have been happy to live there for the rest of her life and i went to her and i'm like babe i, I know you love it here and i love it here and it's an amazing spot and we have to sell it because i can't pay the freaking credit card bill I can't pay for the kids' tuition. Sure. I've stolen all the money I saved for their college from them. You know, I've stolen everything I ever gave the kids back. You know, and we're still out of money. So I I pulled on every string I could pull on, and there's no more strings left. 
so we got to sell our house and and that was not a happy moment you know that was and that's people people are blithe about that they're like oh what a great thing you just wrote you know just must be great to be a rich guy with a winery i'm like well if, if you say so but uh you know there are great moments for sure and as i said to you the first thing i said when you asked me what's the best thing about being a winery owner is the people you meet you know and i i do meet great people and, and have amazing experiences and, and when i travel you know i meet people all around the world or i get connected with people through friends of mine in the wine business and you can have fantastic experiences with other winemakers around the world everywhere you go it's like a in a way like being in a country club or something you know they they're very welcoming but but that's the reality of the wine business and i've had a lot of friends who ran out of money who didn't get over that hump and you know you you get to the point where you don't have any more money to use to try to grow the business to pay it forward you're out so you right. can't grow it forward and then you'd said death by a thousand cuts where you just keep losing money until you're out yeah and that, that happens to a lot of people so that's the that's the the less glamorous side of the wine business but that's the reality um, of it yeah it is yeah vineyards are great but owning a, a wine brand building a wine brand look if you just bought some crappy bulk and slapped a label on it and marketed it if you happen to be high school best friends with the the national buyer for whole foods or total wine or something and that guy says, listen, Mark, you go out and make me some shitty one. I don't care how bad it is, but it's got to be, it's got to be $6 wholesale to me on a Malbec, 10,000 cases, you're done. If you have that kind of relationship, then you could make money, but you wouldn't have a wine you'd be proud of. And my whole reason for getting into the wine business was because I loved wine and I wanted to make amazing wines, right? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't be interested if I wanted to do some really crappy thing. I could find a different business that would be, you know, more lucrative if I wanted to, you know, not make amazing wines. So uh, anyway, you, to go, go back to your question about the characteristics, you know, the fundamental characteristics of the wine. Yeah. What I, are we about? So, yeah, I mean, what is what is, you know, again, for, for my readership and stuff, what 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 do you what does Flanagan, you know, Flanagan wines stand for? I mean, obviously quality. Um, but you know, what are some of the, in your words, the fundamental characteristics of Flanagan wines? Here's how I, I describe it, Mark. I, and I have a lot of friends who are master psalms and advanced psalms. And when I present my wines to them, I make 18 different wines, okay? I make a Viognier, I make a Syrah, I make five different Pinot Noirs and five different Chardonnays, uh, Cabernet, you know, a Merlot, small amount of Merlot from, from uh, Sonoma County. So. The thing that the, the feedback I get from them about what makes us distinctive is that every single one of our wines is varietally correct and like spot on. And the reason for that is because I'm not imposing what I want on the world. Uh, I, I'm looking out there to find the thing. Let's say it this way. The typical person comes up here and buys a vineyard and they're like, I want to I want to make napa cab okay okay and they they bought a cool site you know in carneros well it's not going to ripen cab you, you got the wrong vineyard for what you want to make okay then they don't know right or they buy some super hot site in alexander valley and say i love burgundy i want to make pinot noir i'm like nope right. you're not going to grow pinot noir in alexander valley and even if they buy a pinot noir vineyard in the russian river that's a very warm area and it makes ripe fruit driven jammy pinot noir it doesn't make burgundian style pinot noir 
If right. you love Burgundy and you want to make a cooler climate, Burgundians, it's not going to be exactly the same as Burgundy, but if you want to make restrained high acid wines that are more reflective of the aesthetic of Burgundy, right? Different soils, different climate, you know, they have a continental climate where it's cold in the spring and the fall and super hot in the summer. You go out to the Sonoma coast, it's not cold in the winter and not hot in the summer. You get the same number of degree days, but you get it in a different way, right? So right. the wines are different, but but a, a super cool site on the Sonoma Coast has more in common with Burgundy, more restraint, more non-fruit notes, more spice character, more minerality, better acid, like Burgundy. But it's still yeah. it's not it's not the same. But it's the Chardonnay gets gets closer. Funny enough, um, mm -hmm. but uh, but the wines from the Sonoma Coast are amazing, and and they're balanced, restrained wines that are super interesting to me, much more interesting than warmer sites in Russian River. Russian River is best, you know, the most famous area, I guess, in California for Pinot Noir. But, I, you know, I think that the cooler sites out of the Sonoma Coast produce better, more interesting wines. I think for Chardonnay, Russian River is just wheelhouse. It's like a, just a right. great place to grow Chardonnay. So uh, anyway, like, you know, but I think what distinguishes us is rather than, you know, like, you'll get this, you'll get a a Cabernet maker over in Napa, all of a sudden their customers want Pinot. So they're like, hey, we should make Pinot. It's not that they had any interest in making Pinot per se, but the customers want Pinot. So they go find some Pinot and make some Pinot and sell it to them for $200 a bottle, you know? Right. That's right. Well, most things are driven like that. For me, every wine I make really is the result of me finding a site that that site wants to make the wine I want to make. So. When I get a chance to make a Richie Vineyard Chardonnay or a Bacigalupi Vineyard Chardonnay, I'm not making it because, you know, some marketing plan. I'm making it because those are great sites for Chardonnay and have been for decades. And, you know, you can get in a good block there and make a really a reference point wine. When, right. when I decided to make Vignet, that when my original ranch in Bennett Valley, there's a guy across the street, Jim Mack, who's a great guy, he's from Chicago. And I think he sort of um, fell into what I was talking about before where he got, he, you know, he bought this vineyard and planted it about the same time I did and hired famous consulting winemakers and, you know, did all the things right and, and got his production up to about 3000 cases. But, but he was older, you know, he was in his late sixties and he just didn't have the juice. I don't think to kind of get out and spend 180 days on the road. Right. And so he could never kind of get the, get the jet engines to catch, you know what I mean? And, and you just fall out of the sky is what happens, you know? And so he ended up selling his ranch and, and moving back to Chicago. But yeah, and that, that yeah. just happens more often than not. And fantastic guy, the wines were great, but that's not enough, right? You, then you yeah. have to go out and bust your ass. You really have to bootstrap it. And, you know, when people retire up here at 62 or 65 to start a wine brand, I'm like, cowboy, it's too late. You'll be dead yeah. by the time this is going to work. And you're probably not going to have the energy to make it happen. You know, man, there's a lot of truth to your, to your statement yeah. there. But with this, this guy, I used to buy every year from him, two or three cases of his Viognier because it was the best Viognier I've ever had from the new world. It was just amazing. He's got this site. That's really, really cool. It's down by this little pond. It's only a two acre vineyard. Mm -hmm. He had 29 acres of vineyards, but only two acres of it was Viognier. And so every year I'd buy this Viognier. My wife loved the Viognier. Everybody I showed just like, this is awesome Viognier. So when he sold the ranch, he sold it to people who don't make wine. No so point. now I'm like, ooh, how about if I make the best Viognier in California? Like, yeah. 
I'm not starting out with a marketing plan saying, hey, I need to make some VNA because there's real market demand for that. This is like a, a category we should be in. No, no, I don't give a shit about that. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I don't care to make a VNA. I want to make the VNA. You know, I want to make an amazing VNA from a site that's perfect for it. So that's what drives all the stuff for me, you know, and that's what was the genesis of us acquiring Platt. Um, I believed at the time and continue to believe that Platt was the best site in California for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah. It was pretty well known when I bought it. And, you know, my entire purpose while I owned it was to, you know, improve the farming, uh, get better fruit prices, bring in uh, wineries that would be accretive to the reputation of the vineyard, wineries where there was a great winemaking team, and they also had really good consumer and relationships and relationships with critics and media to where they could really bring attention to what we were doing at Platt and help get that site recognized for what I believe to be true about it, which is, I, I really believe it is a top site for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the, in the whole state. And right. I wanted people to know about that. And I feel like we were successful in doing that. And that's what uh, led to uh, one of the top winery owning companies in the world, singling out Platt and making me an offer essentially that I couldn't say no to. Now, was that, uh, was it AXA? Yes, AXA Millicene, which is their uh, their yeah, division that owns. Uh, yeah, so, you know, yeah. So just to be clear, Mark, I have two different businesses. I have the wine business, and at my yeah. winery, we have no partners. M my my kids own ninety percent of it, uh, and they can never fire me. You know, I, I have the voting stock. <laughs> yeah, good for you. <laughs> I have all the voting shares, and you know, since the day Riley turned eighteen, if something happens to me, she's in charge, and I set it up so that she never has to like, her sisters can't sell their shares and they can't force her to take a loan on that will sink her and they can't make her buy them out. And if there's a divorce or something, screw it. Riley's in charge and the other ones get a profit participation after Riley gets paid fairly for running it. You know, if something happens to me. Yes. So I set that up very mindfully because you've seen so many wineries out here where there's three or four or five siblings and one of them gets in financial trouble and needs the cash out of it. And it sinks the whole family. I've seen oh, that yeah. over and over and over again, over and over. A lot of the older Italian families have gone through this and what happens sometimes they take on a loan to buy out the sibling and then the loan interest, you know, they realize after paying the loan interest in principle, they don't have any money left, you know? So, um, you have to be very thoughtful about how you set it up. But anyway, my wine business, no partners outside the family. It's all, you know, me and the, right. and, the and, and, and our family. But I started to, well, if, 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 like if I have, well, I have friends who have 50 investors in their winery. I'm like, dude, what did you tell them? Did you tell them that they would ever make money on this? Cause that's not true. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you told them or what pro forma you showed them, but I, I don't know if these people are still going to be your friends at the end because it's not a good idea. Right. 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 So I didn't well, want any partners a, in the wine business. Yeah, it's, you know? a, it's a tough. That's a tough road. You have to have, obviously, a you know a sustainable model, which I think obviously everything you've done seems to be that way. And, and what I mean, obviously, is a financial sustainable model and, and a well-run machine, right? And the legality. But even with that, you know, even, it, it, I, everything you're saying is true, Mark. But yeah. it's like there's ten things you have to do to succeed in the business and you could still get, you know, you could still hit up against something you can't beat. I mean, COVID almost yeah. took us out. We had finally made our first profit of $7,000 in 2019. I was working as hard as I could work, you know, 
and I'm traveling half the year and I'm working 60 or 70 hours a week when I'm home, you know, like every day is a work day, right? I'm emailing on Saturday and Sunday and like, I don't even know what day it is because they're all the same, right? So, you know, even with that, like something happens, if you get enough a run of bad things, you know, 2020, we lost, we had our first harvest at our new estate vineyard at the winery. I had redeveloped it. It cost me almost half a million dollars to redevelop that vineyard. I had come up with that money that I didn't have somehow, you know, right. people were always like, oh, why don't you borrow it? I'm like, here's a newsflash. Have you ever gone to a bank and said, I have lost money for the last eight years straight? Uh, here's my tax return minus 1.4 million, you know, and, and like, will you loan me more money? They're like, no, get out of here. They right. don't lend money to you if you're not making money. So, you, you know, the only option you have at that point is like a hard money lender who wants three points up front and a 10% interest rate. And their plan is to take your asset away from you when you can't pay them. That's your option at that point, right? Somebody right. who's not lending based on your ability to repay them, but rather lending in the hope you don't repay them and they just seize your asset. So, yeah. you know, That's but anyway, I redeveloped that vineyard, their first harvest, we had two fires. One of them got a thousand yards from the vineyard. Oh, and so we no. lost the entire crop. And because it was the first year it was going to produce a crop, there's no crop yield history. We can't get crop insurance. hundred oh. percent write-off. And, you know, you look at us, people are like, oh, wine sales were up during COVID. I'm like, well, for Gallo, they were in KJ and Constellation, people that had wine in grocery stores, cheap wine got hoarded like toilet paper, right? Like people yeah. want their booze. But we don't sell wine to grocery stores. You know, we sell wine at events I do around the country. We sell wine to people who visit us at the winery. You know, we sell it to country clubs and restaurants. All mm -hmm. of those closed. So yeah. the only avenue for sales that we had left was our wine club and our, our, our you know, our customers. And yeah. so Riley, Riley was the one who told me. I have to tell you, Mark, in, in my whole life, I don't really ever remember being despondent. But, but when we went into lockdown... I yes. really didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't know what to do. And, and Riley, who at the time was 21 said to me, daddy, you just got to get digital. You got to find a way to connect with people online and sell wine online. Cause that's all you got. Yeah. You can't go do a yeah. wine dinner. The restaurants are closed. The country clubs are closed. The winery is closed for tastings. You can't have visitors. You got nothing dude, except yeah. whatever you can do online. And so we created a calendar. And Riley did most of the calls with me. We did 250 Zoom call tastings. We sold 2,000 cases of wine direct to consumer on those Zoom call tastings. No way. Congrats. That's yeah. awesome. That's digging deep. That's putting your feet into the earth and saying, okay, we got this. That's it was awesome. unbelievable. Now, That's uh, were, those, were those like wine tasting, virtual wine tastings, or what were they? What are I called it real wine with virtual Eric because the problem when you say virtual wine tasting is you think you're not getting any fucking wine. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have said swear, but okay. um, I, like it. I like our interviews real. OK, well, that's <laughs> the thing. So a virtual wine tasting to me is like bullshit, right? Where yeah. you're going to watch some guy go, let's take a deep dive on my cellar and try my 97 Dry Creek yeah. Zinfandel. Like yeah. uh, that. No, nobody's ever going to drink that wine and no one has it to try with you. So I'm not I'm really into wine and I'm not into watching, you know, I, I don't want to get too graphic about it, but it's not even like watching porn. It's like watching someone watching porn, mm -hmm. you know, 
Like you're not involved, right? <laughs> you're yeah. not drinking the wine. You're never going to drink the wine. Why would you possibly care? How could you care? It's not interesting. So I said to Riley, if we're going to do this, we need to make sure and get the wine into somebody's hands before we right. do the tasting. So we set up a whole calendar. We shipped all the wine out. I offered people, I've never done a discount on my wines ever. I never do a sale. I've never sent an email saying, hey, just this week, free shipping. No, nothing ever. Because then you condition people to wait for a sale. I think it shows a lack of respect for what you're doing when, you know, when you do that. So I never do that. But in COVID, I did say, if you'll do the tastings with us, we'll give you a discount on the wines for the tasting sets. Make it accessible for you, right? If you're doing a four vintage vertical at Cabernet, you know, it would have been 400 bucks. Well, 400 bucks a is a lot to do a wine tasting, right? So I'm like, we're going to give you a deal. We're going to do a 50% discount on the wine. So we just cover our costs for the wines for the tasting. We'll send you everything. And then we would have 15, 20, 30 people, different Zoom links. We'd Mm -hmm. ship all the wines out ahead of time. Everybody would jump on and crack open the bottles. I taught people about how to store wine. People, they don't know this. Like when you open a bottle of wine, most people, when they open a white wine, put it back in the fridge because white wines are kept cold. But what they right. do with the red wine, they leave it on the counter. Well, if you leave red wines on the counter, they oxidize very quickly. Oxidation yep. is a chemical process. And like most chemical processes, it occurs more rapidly at a higher temperature. So if you take your bottle of red wine that's open, put the cork in it and stick it in the fridge, it typically lasts four or five or six days. You know, so that kind of eliminated the concern people would have about Oh my God, I'm opening four bottles of wine. How am I going to drink it all? Well, first of all, if there were two of them doing the tasting, they probably drank two of the bottles, you know, like half of each of them that night anyway. You know, one bottle a person is not an unusual amount to enjoy, especially during COVID. I don't think I've ever had a recork a bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're like, what's... What's with that whole? What are you talking about storing wine? <laughs> what? Right. Who who does that? Man, you know. Goodness, those. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But yeah, no, I. Like, that, you know, I love that. Now, are you still doing that as a revenues channel and another way to access to access you? You know. In- so it's funny. So I was doing like one a day, sometimes two a day of those, and I okay. I reached out to all our club members. I said, hey does your company want to do a team building thing or a client entertainment thing or anything, you know, do it with me. We're really good at it. Riley and I had a great interaction online. Like it was, it really was like, I had people, you know, no Mark, I had people emailing me. I had customers who were on, we, we did two calls a week for club members. Right. And I had club members who were on every single call we did for months, months, twice a week, every week they tuned into the Riley and Eric show. You know, and we would just get on and we had a real community. And what was interesting about it is it it actually was a great way for us to spend more time with some of our customers, because, you know, if they live in Austin, Texas, I might get there once a year for a weekend, you know, to do a couple events and they might come out for my harvest party in October. I might see them twice a year. And usually when I do see them, there's a bunch of other people there. And, you know, it's hard to to, you know, so if I stay at their house, we get to know each other a lot better. And I've done that a lot. So yeah. I've gotten to be really good friends with my, a lot of my club members just by imposing on their hospitality. But this, on these Zoom calls, we really got to know some of our customers much better than we otherwise would have, which is that was interesting. Then they'll still do something like that. But right. the appetite for it, which there was a voracious appetite for, for, the, for the Zoom call tastings in 2020, 
you know, people literally couldn't get enough of it, you know? Right. And we, we, I said, we had tremendous success with it, but as things opened back up, interest in that did wane. But I think that there's probably still some more niche opportunities for that. And I just, I guess I've been so busy in the real world. I haven't paid any attention to the virtual world lately, but I'm that sure that that's right, Eric. Look, what's that? I said, with all that extra time you have, right, Eric? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, on the, what's I, next I, on the horizon for Flanagan Wines? What's that look like? I mean, how do you continue to evolve? Well, you know, my focus is going to stay on continuing to do small lots of wines from vineyards that I'm excited about. So, mm -hmm. you know, we just harvested on Monday Richie Vineyard and Bacigalupi Vineyard. The fruit quality is excellent. The the unfortunate thing this year, and you never know really until you pick. But the crop yields from those sites, I'm not saying that this is going to be true in all sites, but there was apparently uh, a pretty bad shatter issue, just depending on timing. So if you had a site out at the coast that started later and, and, and went through later, uh, those sites set okay. I have a vineyard on River Road that the set looks good and the crop looks good out there. But along West Side Road and East Side Road, Richie is on East Side Road and Bachelup is on West Side Road. They 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 flower early and they went through and there was like just really shitty weather, rain and wind during the time they were flowering. So we normally get three to four tons of Chardonnay from Richie. We got less than one. I mean, I can send you pictures, but Kent came up Monday with his little yellow truck he drives around and there was two, two bins not quite full two half ton bins not quite full and you know there should have been six or eight full bins yeah and with bacha gloopy uh normally she picks 12 rows and gets us four tons yeah she picked or, or sorry she i think normally 17 rows and gets us four tons she picked 23 rows to get us two tons oh so again, they're they're running at about seventy percent down at Richie wow. and how many, how many total um, vineyards or you know what acres do, does Flanagan Wines have under its umbrella? Well, we only own the seven acre vineyard at the winery in Flanagan Wines. Uh, we buy fruit from Richie, owned by Kent Richie, Bachgloopy, yeah. owned by the Bachgloopy family. We buy some Syrah from the, the vineyard that Riley and I planted the first grapes on, where, which we sold when we moved up to Healdsburg. Okay. We buy some Viognier from some folks in, in Bennett Valley. Um, but I have the second business, which I started in 2015, right around the time we spoke. Yeah. I launched a vineyard investment group called Russian River Partners. And okay. I raised 17 million in equity for that through friends of mine, mostly in the financial business, but some of them in the wine business. Um, and and we took on another 10 million of financing from American Ag Credit and purchased six different vineyard projects, the most famous of which was Platt. Yes. Uh, and that's why anything I own in the vineyard investment partnership, uh, Mark, if you make me an offer on one of those vineyards that's really, really good, I have to take it because I have a lot of investors. But uh, on Flanagan Wines, I can tell you no. But on anything that we own through Russian River Partners, uh, you know, those are basically purchased to be improved, you know, fix the farming, improve the farming, place the fruit with better wineries at higher prices, improve the reputation of the vineyard do things like create building sites where we can separate house assets from vineyard assets, which makes both of them worth more money, you know, right. like 
a, a commercial winery that needs a 40 acre vineyard doesn't want an eight million dollar house on it because they don't so have it's any- like russian river partners kind of like um like you you have a fund and then you syndicate to raise capital and then go out and secure is that is that kind of how that works we've done we've, yes okay nice. we've done five different capital raises and uh purchased six different vineyards one of them had two vineyards Beautiful. in the, in well, the that's, one that's exciting it is and you know what that that, that honestly kind of probably well it probably saved us because uh when i launched that then i started to get a little bit of a management fee for running that business and as yeah, we absolutely. had profits farming or we have profits from selling properties i participate in that also so that revenue stream wasn't huge but it was something and it helped us get through you know when under the category being scrappy right like yeah. i need to come up with some money to continue to pay it forward in the wine business how am i going to do that a bank won't lend me money because i have negative tax returns you know i I'm, right. i'm losing money no one wants to lend you money so i started a second business because you know with my free time as you like to joke with right. all my free time i started a second business and i was very fortunate uh that i have a lot of very good friends and people who knew me well as a trader uh a bond trader for 29 years and so i had a reputation with those guys as being i think scrupulously honest and hard working and maybe not stupid and so um they these guys had a lot of financial assets stocks and bonds but a lot of them didn't have a lot of real assets and i think they were attracted to the idea of having productive farm assets where they could have an operating income from the farming by the way mostly which gets sheltered by depreciation on the asset right so it's a yes. tax efficient income and then in the end you basically turn or you defer all the gains to capital gain at the end which is a tax favorable treatment also so um they liked the whole idea of the thing i put together a you know a, a 20 page white paper i did a bunch of research on on land prices and values and kind of explained a few different niches that i would look at or I, which i thought were the best ones for us to invest in and uh and i i found some uptake i found some guys who said yeah i like that idea i i like you the first thing for an investor is for them to believe that you're not going to a steal their money or be pissed away because you're stupid so right. if you can check those two boxes you're halfway there right yeah so i think they were like eric is not going to steal from me and eric is not stupid and we'll go from there yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well that's 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 a good thing so and they have the confidence and you deliver so you're a man of your word and you make things happen it might take time but you make it happen that's that's well yeah that's and you know investing so Certain, right like if i didn't put a disclaimer in here that you know past performance is no guarantee of future results right you can always <laughs> exactly. have something go wrong but you know at least you're thoughtful about the process and setting yourself up to be successful you know right. within all reasonable kind of parameters so um yeah, you know the, the plat transaction was very um was a very good one for the investors they were very happy about it and i think the new owners are going to be fantastic stewards of that property so uh, it felt like a great uh, a great uh, outcome all around Well that is that's exciting. Eric, I know we're at the hour and I want to be respectful of your afternoon here or actually your morning. Eric, thank you very much for all of your time today. I I'm so humbled and grateful. Thank you. Mark, it's always a pleasure speaking with you and great to reconnect and uh, we'll keep in thank touch you. for sure. I look forward to to seeing the article. Absolutely. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. Cheers. Yep. Bye-bye.